Is higher education still valuable? Today's episode seeks to answer that question. Good morning, Africa. Welcome aboard your pulse on everything business in Africa. I am Ruth Adong. For more, follow us on Twitter at The K Financial, and you can find me at Ruth Adong. Higher education faces many issues. A mismatch between the skills graduates learn and those their prospective employers seek, a contribution to amplifying social inequalities rather than reducing them, a diminishing return on investment for university degrees, a limited contribution to its sustainability, and rising competition from new actors in education, including private companies. Yet no common alternative to universities has clearly emerged. Hence the question, is higher education still valuable? During the World Innovation Summit on Education in Doha, Qatar, experts offered their insight. As the COVID-19 pandemic puts the health, economic, and education models under stress, how can universities reinvent themselves to be of more value to learners? President of Qatar Foundation, Francesco Mamalejo, answers that question. You know, all the evidence in terms of economic and social returns and externalities about the value of higher education shows that even after the pandemic, uh, the pandemic world. Of course, uh, the big question is not only if higher education is still valuable, but how higher education can be more valuable. And secondly, how that value can be widened, can be extended to many in the world that still don't have that opportunity. And that's where I believe in the post-pandemic world, we need to challenge our traditional assumptions and dogmas about higher education. We need to question how we can make something that allows the value of higher education being higher, being more relevant, not only to the individuals, but more important to the societies in which they live, and how can benefit more number of people in the world. Still, we need to recognize that unfortunately, there are few, and we are part of that. We are part of the few who have benefited from education. While there are many in the world who have exactly the same right as us, but who didn't have the same opportunity. And that's what should be our responsibility in higher education. Nieves Segova, president of SEC Group, tackles why is there such a huge mismatch between skills acquired at the higher institutions of learning and what the market requires? Well, that's a very interesting question because I feel uh, that uh, the whole education system is so siloed and there are insufficient conversations between uh, schools, K-12 schools, and then the world of university and then the corporate world. And if we do have conversations, they are just very specific. It's not about creating that continuum, that lifelong learning journey that we all talk so much about, but it seems to be externalized and distributed in this small kind of, 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 of stocks of knowledge, I may say. So, so we're failing. I mean, we're failing society because we don't hold all, all those right conversations. Because, of course, the universities say all oh, schools are, uh, students coming from schools are not sufficiently prepared, but did you tell them what you needed? I mean, and, our, and it's what universities need, exactly what society needs. Have you had these other conversations? So I think we are uh, we are in a crossroads right now where we cannot continue to have a failing system that's not really optimizing the results, that's not being efficient. Ben Nelson from Minerva University gives nuance to has higher education delegitimized itself? In that approach, uh, because what higher education is doing is in many ways begging to be disrupted. We're having this conversation because higher education has spent decades doing whatever it can to delegitimize itself in the public perception. You know, given the statistics that Francisco correctly quoted, you look at, you know, historical results, you get a college degree, you have, you know, far better, um, at least correlative outcomes in, in, uh, 
uh, an income and career and uh, even uh, longevity. Why is it that higher education is under constant attack? And I think that's what Nieves was talking about, that higher education becomes less and less relevant. Employers look at people who come out of uh, higher education institutions and say, well, we thank you for sifting through the people initially that you saved us some, some time in, in finding good people with raw intellectual horsepower. You didn't do anything with them for four years, but at least you, you saved us some trouble of looking. And that is a catastrophic problem because the reality is, is that deepening education, systematic thinking is crucial for the world. And higher education, in many ways, high schools to a certain extent as well, are the only institutions in society that can provide that. But when they choose not to provide systematic thinking as the core of what they do, they then enable others to come in and say, wait a second, I can find you smart high school graduates. I can find you smart middle school graduates. I'll skip all that you know, wasted time in between. I'll just hand them right to the employer. And more and more people are starting to buy off on that trope. And that's extraordinarily dangerous for society. So I think that's why we're having this conversation. And this is what we need to do. We have to find a way to reform institutions of secondary and post-secondary education to actually recommit to systematic education of their students and center education away from really what is not useful for society to a broad application of wisdom. For Achika Dover from Princeton University and co-founder of Innovage, of Innovaj. The question is simple. Why aren't colleges and universities listening to students who are the key stakeholders? I think probably the biggest thing, and I think Nevis talks about this idea of how higher edu- education institutions are failing in certain ways, is that they're not listening to the most key stakeholder at hand, which are the students. We almost have no say in how our classes are developed, how we're learning, who we're learning from, all of these different things that are just so fundamental to that four-year experience. And maybe developing us into individuals um, that are ready to go out into the real world and contribute in meaningful ways, and that's not happening. So I think the largest complaint that I hear is that a lot of the times when we're taking classes, which is really the fundamental purpose of why we're there to learn, we're not enjoying it, and we don't want to do it. And I, I'll go through year and after year and look at course reviews of like the courses that, we're, that are mandatory that we have to take, and all the students are like, oh, I don't like this course, like, don't take this course until, unless you have to take it, or this isn't taught properly, and it's not changing. And I'm like, it's so easy. We're literally giving you that review every single semester that this is not working, and they just aren't incentivized, especially at an institution that I go to, like Princeton, where no matter what they do, you know, employers will still come knocking on the door and be like, okay, we're going to take your students. We're not actually getting that development or that growth unless they're going to listen to us. Um, I also had another conversation the other day outside of the class and thinking about entrepreneurship and innovation on campus with a dean. And she was talking about how they're creating this physical space on the other side of campus that no one lives on where students can go and collaborate. It's a hub for innovation. I'm like, no one's going to go there. Like, it's so far. Maybe if you talk to five students about this, they would tell you that's a long walk. No one's going to sit there for two hours and hope that someone shows up and they can collaborate and innovate with them. Um, So I think those are two very fundamental examples of where we're falling short in terms of why we need to listen to students and why we need to make it more valuable um, by utilizing the students' perspectives. And a look at the other stories making it into the podcast. The number of hungry people in Africa continues to rise, spurred by conflict, climate change and economic slowdowns such as COVID-19.
A survey by the United Nations Economic Commission, African Union Commission, and the Food and Agriculture Organization show 21% of the continent's population is malnourished, a 4.3% rise since 2014. According to the report, the majority of undernourished people live in East Africa at 125.1 million people, followed by West Africa at 75.2 million and Central Africa at 57.1 million. Northern Africa has 17.4 million undernourished population, while Southern Africa has the least at 6.8 million people. Africa is yet to meet the second sustainable development goal that targets to end hunger and ensure access by all people to safe, nutritious and sufficient food all year round and end all forms of malnutrition. And a look at the inflation news coming out today. Botswana's annual inflation rate eased to 8.6% in November from 8.8% in the previous month. Main upward pressure came from prices of transport, housing and utilities, food and non-alcoholic beverages, and also miscellaneous goods and services. The core inflation rate edged down by 0.2% points to 7.0%. On a monthly basis, consumer prices were unchanged from October after rising 0.9% that month. Nigeria's annual inflation rate has fallen for the eighth straight month to 15.4% in November from 15.99% in October. It's the lowest rate since November last year amid the continued deceleration in food inflation. Meanwhile, the annual co-inflation rate, which excludes the prices of agricultural produce, rose to 13.85% in November, the highest since April of 2017 from 13.24% in the prior month. On a monthly basis, consumer prices inched up by 1.08% after a 0.98% increase in the prior month. And a look at Ghana's numbers. Ghana's annual inflation rate has accelerated for the sixth straight month to 12.2% in November from 11% in October, its highest level since it was rebased in 2019 and surpassing rates recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic. Prices accelerated for both food and non-food products, mostly due to housing and utilities. On a monthly basis, consumer prices inched up 1.4% after a 0.6% increase in the previous month. Staying with inflation numbers, the annual inflation rate in South Africa has accelerated to 5.5% in November from 5% in October, above market expectations of 5.4% and the 4.5% midpoint of the South African Reserve Bank monetary policy target range of 3 to 6%. This is the highest rate since March of 2017, underpinned by prices of transport amid fuel price hikes, food and non-alcoholic beverages, housing and utilities, namely electricity and other fuels, and also miscellaneous goods and services. The annual core inflation rate, which excludes volatile items such as food and non-alcoholic beverages, fuel and energy, was at 3.3% in November, the highest since January, up from 3.2% in the prior month, marching market estimates. On a monthly basis, consumer prices inched up by 0.5% after 0.2% increase in the prior month, and above market estimates of 0.4%. Thank you for always waking up with us. Good Morning Africa is a product of the K Financial. And if you have any suggestions or you want to check out more stories, visit our website, that is thekfinancial.com. And don't forget to subscribe. You can also find us on all social media platforms at the K Financial. And you can find me at With a Dong on Twitter. <laughs>